Uh, thanks again, Leah. Uh, thanks, Ban. Thanks, Ellen. Uh, uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, again, we want to welcome you to our church, especially if you're a visitor or if you uh, are just been around for a few weeks or for a few months. We're glad uh, that you're here. Uh, I wanted to start off my sermon by just maybe asking you a question that maybe you thought of before, maybe not, but what, what would you say is the greatest uh, miracle ever in the Bible? The greatest miracle ever. Was it maybe the parting of the Red Sea? Was it God showing up in, in the burning bush or the plagues in Egypt? Maybe God being a pillar of fire and smoke leading the Israelites through the wilderness? Maybe the widow's oil never running out? Today we're going to see the conclusion. It's been three weeks now. We're going to see the conclusion of maybe the greatest miracle ever in human history up to this point in the story. A man was dead. His heart had stopped pumping, pumping days before. His brain activity had ceased for four days. His body had begun to rot. And the smell of death was filling his sealed tomb. His, his cells had started to decay. And his family was deeply grieving, knowing that they would never see their loved one again. Yet, Jesus of Nazareth... A friend to the dead man shows up. And with his words alone, he doesn't need to touch the body even. With his words alone, he shines light into a dark tomb and brings life where only death has ever existed. We're in a sermon series right now uh, in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and he writes about his uh, eyewitness, firsthand accounts of Jesus' life, his teachings, his ministry and his death and resurrection. So we are about in the middle of John, uh, more or less. And today we're going to be looking at the end of this uh, kind of three-part story about this guy named Lazarus who dies and his sisters that Jesus also deeply loves. We're looking at uh, John eleven thirty-eight through 44. If you want to turn your Bibles to that passage, it'll be on the screen. It's also in the handout in your worship folder. And today we're entitling the sermon, A Phrase from our uh, passage today, the man who had died came out. So we already read the passage. So just to kind of intro, in case you haven't been here the past couple weeks, or maybe you don't know this story or how we got to this point so far, uh, we have three characters, people that are described by John as, as people that Jesus loves. So not just his followers, not just acquaintances, not just random Hebrews or Israelites that, that Jesus kind of just cares about because they're a part of uh, the sheep of Israel, but he even calls them his friends. He loves these people deeply. Two sisters, Martha and Mary, and a man named Lazarus. And they live in a, a village called Bethany just outside the capital of Jerusalem. So think Invergrove Heights or something. Uh, and Jesus loves these people. And actually, in the passage right before this, we see just some profound things that have happened in their lives. So Lazarus becomes sick. Jesus is far away. They call for him. And, and, and Jesus says, because I love this family, because I love Lazarus, I'm not going to leave and come to Bethany to heal him which is crazy. And Jesus comes a few days later. He shows up. Lazarus is already dead. He's in the tomb. And it is there that Jesus has these interactions with the two sisters, with Martha and Mary. And here we even hear Martha declare, uh, as far as I know, the first person publicly to declare, 
who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's where we pick up our story today. Today we're going to look at this miracle through uh, three different lenses. We're going to look at it as if, and it is, that uh, Lazarus is a real, live, and then dead, and then alive, historical figure, a man who really did live 2,000 years ago, died, was resurrected by Jesus. Then we're going to look at it through another lens, seeing us in the story, us as Lazarus, him being a picture of us and what we're going through and have gone through. And then finally, the third lens we're going to look at this passage, we're going to see that there is uh, a foreshadowing of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection and the hope that that brings, Jesus' full and final defeat of death and his glorious resurrection. But first, let's start with our passage here today. Lazarus as a man. Lazarus as a true historical figure and what Jesus did. Today our passage starts by saying, then Jesus deeply moved again. We saw this actually uh, in, uh, just earlier on in John eleven thirty three, just a few verses earlier, when Jesus saw Lazarus' sisters weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This phrase, deeply moved, which is an accurate translation, but many of your Bibles actually have a, a footnote or a little number by it that says this word can also be translated angry or indignant. So when Jesus shows up, he's not only heartbroken, he's not only sad because someone, not just an acquaintance, but a friend that he deeply loves has died, but Jesus is indignant. He's angry at our greatest enemy. He's angry at death. Listen to how uh, 19th century uh, professor B.B. Warfield describes this. The emotion which tore Jesus' breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of Jesus' wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, of whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils for which oppress us, he has felt for us and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought our redemption. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that Jesus did not just die for you out of duty because he had to, because he was supposed to, because that was his mission, or maybe because he loved the Father and wanted to obey the Father and his plan? All of which are, are, are true, but there's so much more than that. Have you ever thought about Jesus being indignant and wrathful and, and angry at your enemy? The enemy of death. The enemy that, apart from Christ, will always win. And so as Jesus approaches 
Lazarus. He is indignant. He is angry. He is furious. He is deeply moved. Not only is his heart broken, but he is angry and furious at our enemy, which is death, which has stolen his friend. As our story picks up, Jesus comes to the tomb and he speaks uh, to the people that are there, tells them to remove the stone, and Martha speaks up. She says, but Lord, he's been dead, and not just dead a few hours, but days, so much so that his body is rotting, it's decaying, it's disgusting, there's odors. Yet Jesus tells them to remove the stone, and they listen. So Lazarus truly was dead. He wasn't just faking it. He wasn't just pretending. He wasn't just, uh, as the Princess Bride said, mostly dead. He is fully dead. He is in the tomb. His body is rotting. And when the stone is removed, the crowd there smells and sees the results of what had happened four days prior. Yet Jesus is who, who Mary just said a few verses earlier, or Martha just said, Jesus is God. And when God speaks, reality obeys. When the word of God goes forth, as we saw at the beginning of this very book, the beginning of the, the story, when God speaks, when God's words go forth, creation and light and life appear where there is darkness and death. And Jesus speaks into the tomb. He yells, Lazarus, come out. The famous uh, British uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, it's great that Jesus said Lazarus right here before he said come out or else all across the country, corpses would just spring forth from their tombs. That is how powerful our Jesus is. But John again is showing us what he has already told us. So all throughout John, John has been very clear. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus did. Let me interpret it for you. This is who he is. And here in our story, we're seeing it again. In Jesus, raising Lazarus from the grave, we see that Jesus is God. Who else has the power to bring life where there is death except for God? Jesus is also the creator. He is the word of God, as John 1 said. And it is through him life now is existing. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He speaks into a dark tomb of death and light lights it up. Jesus calls himself the resurrection just a few verses earlier and he brings resurrection and life to this dead man. No longer could death hold Lazarus, but rather life appears and he walks out. Throughout John, we've seen Jesus' voice do powerful things already, right? He's spoken to nature. He's spoken to storms and, and, and creation and weather and reality obey. He's calmed waves. He's healed crippled bodies. And now, and maybe his greatest miracle ever, he's forcing reality to obey in a way that has never happened before. Now, unbelievable miracle. We could stop right here and just say, this, this is who our God is. This is who the King of Kings is that we just sang about. Yet, 
As we think about this a little more deeply, we realize that even though Lazarus was one of the only human beings ever to be resurrected, yet one day, Lazarus died again. Which is kind of a bummer, right? One of the greatest things to happen ever, yet he's one of the few guys to actually die two times. And so this moves the story forward. Yes, happy middle. Really happy middle. Maybe one of the greatest middles of a person's life and story ever. Yet, guess what? Lazarus went back in that tomb once again. And so our story moves forward. The, the book of John does not end right here with, with Jesus' greatest sign ever. The resurrection of a man who is dead for four days. But rather, the story moves forward. It has to move forward. This is a great ending, but not an ultimate happy ending. Something more needs to happen. So our story is pushed forward. All right, so Lazarus was a real historical figure. This did really happen. Yet, on a more symbolic type level, as we're reading this story, you probably felt some empathy or sympathy. Or maybe you saw yourself in this story. So the second lens we're going to look at our passage today is, is to see Lazarus and also his sisters as uh, pictures of us, as examples of the human condition, as, as stuff that you personally are going through right now or have gone through in the past. Let's first just start with the sisters. We too, like Martha and Mary, maybe we're crippled right now by our circumstances. I don't, I don't know what you're going through today. Maybe it's relational challenges. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's doubts in your life or sin. Whatever it might be, maybe you're like Martha and Mary, just hopeless and crippled by what's going on in your life. Or maybe you are powerless like Martha and Mary were, powerless to protect those you love. Maybe it's a loved one who's, who's going through some type of injustice or maybe uh, illness or disease or death. And you, even though you love them, you were or are powerless to fix their problem. And to all, all of us, to some extent, have experienced seasons of suffering and loss. And so we, too, maybe have great sympathy and understanding for what Martha and Mary are going through. Days of mourning and grief. Dr. Catherine Butler comments on this beautifully. She says, His grace is most apparent to us, not when we're conquering the world, but rather when we're brought low when we're stricken and bereft, with nowhere to look but heavenward. The raising of Lazarus provides another vivid example of how God works through tragedy to draw us to himself. In their deep distress and helplessness, hopelessness even, where do Martha and Mary go? Where do they go? They go to Jesus. They go to Jesus. In that moment of suffering, they deeply see their, their inefficiency, their incompleteness, and their need for Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But not only are we like Martha and Mary, kind of circumstantially, or just this is a great picture of the human condition on this side of Jesus' return, we too are like Lazarus on an even greater way. Many of us are suffering with disease, with chronic illness or chronic pain, 
You don't have to raise your hands. I know many of us are. Sickness, or, or maybe just even age, right? The clock is ticking. We're getting older. We've hit the next year or the next decade, and we're just keenly aware of how uh, our bodies are failing us or that death is some, someplace in our future. And so maybe you are asking this question, the question that the disciples are asking, the question that Martha and Mary asked. Why does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Why not everyone? Or maybe you're saying it, you're looking at your own life, your own disease, your own brokenness, your own age, and you're saying, why not me? If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the death, why am I not being healed? Why does the pain never end? Why am I not getting better? And that's a great question to ask. It's very normal and very human to ask it. And Martha and Mary asked it. The disciples are asking it. And uh, Amy, my wife Amy and I were chatting through this passage just last night, and we thought, this doesn't always happen, but, but thank God that Jesus actually uh, tells us what's going on here. Like, it's not a parable. It's not too hard to understand. He just flat out tells us. He says, there's going to be a point to this miracle. There's going to be a point to this sign. Jesus says that the point of him raising Lazarus from the grave would be to do two things, to give God glory, to make God famous, to give worship to the one true God, and that those who would see this would believe. People who didn't believe before would see Jesus, would see the divine flowing through him, would see pictures of the one true God described in creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. See that in this man, Jesus, and believe he really is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. You see, there's something even greater than a man coming back to life and getting a few more years on this world. Yes, that's fantastic. Yes, it's, it's maybe the greatest uh, miracle up to this point, yet there's something even greater than a man coming back to life, than, than this man, than, than you getting a few more years in this life. At the very beginning of our story, back in verse 4, Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, and he says, this illness does not lead to death, but for the glory of God, and so that the Son of God may be glorified. Jesus is saying, ultimately, Lazarus will not die. This illness will turn into something different because the point of this is that so God will be glorified and that the Son of God, Jesus himself, might be glorified through it. And then it becomes even more clear as Jesus, right before he calls into that empty tomb, he, he prays. And he says, I'm not really praying to you, Father, as if like we're not you know, completely unified and haven't just talked a few moments prior. But I'm praying out loud so that everyone listening will know that you sent me, will know that I'm from you, will know that I'm divine, will know that I'm the Son of God, and so that they may believe. The point of this resurrection is that so God will be glorified as people believe. Again, Catherine Butler writes about this. She says, 
As we grapple with the afflictions that seize our own bodies in this life, we may wonder why Jesus delays in rescuing us. Let me just pause right there. If that's you, don't hate yourself for wondering this. This is very normal. My wife and I recently went through our family uh, unbelievable moments where our son was in the NICU for months and wondering why isn't God answering our prayers immediately? What is going on here? Why does tragedy keep seeming to come? Why does it seem like he is waiting? And so we have, we're going to finish this, this quote by Catherine Buller, but if that is you right now, do not be crushed by shame, thinking, oh, if I just had more faith and I would never doubt, I would never wonder why it seems like God is delaying and rescuing me. Catherine Butler uh, continues, she says, God has the power to heal me, we think, so, so why doesn't he? In John 11, we glimpse an answer. We can't grasp his mind or duplicate his ways, and so when we pray but only hear silence, it doesn't mean that he's ignoring us. When we bid him come and he delays, he hasn't abandoned us. Rather, even when we can't fathom how, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, so that we might believe. John, in this book that we've been in for months and months, over and over and over again, in many and various ways, John has been telling us, you need more than just physical life. You need more than just temporal life. Jesus again and again and again, and it's becoming more and more clear. Jesus is saying you also need spiritual life. You need spiritual resurrection. You need eternal life. And that is what he came to bring. Even greater than Lazarus, having a few more years or a few more decades on this earth with his family, Lazarus also needs spiritual life and eternal life, which Jesus came to bring. <clears throat> which, in, which then leads us to an even greater way. Lazarus is not only a picture of us because you and I have arthritis and chronic pain and disease <clears throat> and will eventually one day die unless Jesus returns. Lazarus is a picture of us in an even greater and truer, truer way because of our spiritual state. Because we won't just die one day physically, but rather uh, spiritually speaking, apart from faith in Christ, we are spiritually dead. We're not only humans like him who are imprisoned by sickness, age, death, and decay, but we're spiritually dead, and now through Christ can be made alive. In fact, the New Testament speaks about our state apart from faith in Christ in these exact terms. In Ephesians 2, we read, this is written to Christians, saying, Christians, church, this is who you were apart from saving faith in Jesus. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins because of our rebellion against God, because of our sinful nature, because of us making ourselves our own king and God in our lives, because of our rebellion against him, because of our trespasses and sins, we were dead. We were spiritually dead. But the passage doesn't end there. Verse 4 says, but the story doesn't end there. You don't stay in your tomb like Lazarus, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's by Jesus' grace that he spoke into that tomb and Lazarus came out. Not by Lazarus working for it or trying really hard to get his brain to start working again or his heart to start pumping. And so Lazarus's story is our story as Christians. If you're a Christian here today, Lazarus is a physical picture of what has happened in your past, in your life, spiritually, through the gospel. This is your story, Christian. Jesus has seen you. He has wept over the disease of sin that's destroyed your life. He has been furious and indignant at our enemy, death, and has called into the pitch black tomb to you and to me. And he's called you by name to come out. Come out of death. Walk out. Be resurrected. Have new life. Through the gospel, he says, I will make you alive. Put your name in there right now. He calls into your tomb and he says, come out. Through faith in me, I will make you alive. I will resurrect you. Like Lazarus, I will make you breathe and live once again. Did you notice, though, how our, our passage kind of ends today? Maybe a little strange, maybe, you, maybe not. It ends by Jesus uh, saying, uh, so, so Lazarus comes out, but it says his hands and his feet are still bound with linen strips, and he still had his face wrapped with the burial cloth, right? So he's resurrected. He's alive truly, yet he comes out kind of looking like a mummy, right? Which is, which is kind of strange. And Jesus speaks to the crowd, speaks to others. He says, unbind him and let him go. So if Lazarus is a symbol and an example of our own salvation, and he is, then him walking out of the tomb, wrapped up, unable to fully unwrap himself, for be unbound is also a great picture of our life as Christians. Resurrected, yes. Exclamation point. Alive, yes. But also still kind of stumbling, still kind of entangled and, and, and not able to fully see, fighting against these burial cloths, these reminders of our former state, of us being dead, and us needing the help of others to help us Remove these bindings, remove these burial cloths, remove these reminders of our former state. So clear, but also very confusing, right? Martin Luther is one of the first people to say, or the first person to say this phrase. He describes Christians as being uh, simul justice et peccator. That's my uh, perfect Latin right there. Uh, which, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. Simultaneous, both at the same time. Justified, you are made righteous in Christ. You are declared innocent. You are a saint, Christian. And simultaneously, still wrestling with sin. Still fighting against these burial cloths that remind us of or are uh, remnants of our former state of being spiritually dead and imprisoned. Christian, our life is this. Listen carefully. This is what John 
11 is saying to us. This is what Jesus is saying to you today if you are a Christian. Our identity, your identity is this. You are alive. You are spiritually resurrected. You are united to Christ. You are no longer banished from God's presence. You are gifted Christ's righteousness. You are seen by God as innocent and clean and righteous and pure. You are called saint. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt has fully been paid. You are no longer slaves. You are no longer dead. You're no longer imprisoned in the tomb. You are free. You are alive. And you will still struggle. We will still sin. We're still partially bound by the burial clothes, working with the help of other Christians and our church to untangle the effects of once being spiritually and fully dead. Or as other parts of the New Testament say, we're, we're putting off the old self. The great description of the Christian life. John, same author who wrote John, writes another book later to Christians, to the church, and, and this is what he reminds the church of. Church, if you claim that you are without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not with you. So we have both at the same time, simultaneously fully alive, fully a saint, fully innocent, fully pure. And we still have the stain of sin on us in some way. We still are wrapped up with some burial cloths of sin. Yet, for the spiritually resurrected, for the Christian, the term sinner is not your ultimate identity. Yes, it is what you still do, and probably will do within a few minutes or even hours. It's what we struggle with. It's our temptation. Yet, sinner is not your ultimate identity anymore, if you are a Christian. Death, being dead, being a corpse is no longer your fullest and ultimate identity if you are in Christ. Romans 6.11 reminds us, again, speaking to the church, Christian, consider yourself, you must consider yourself dead to sin. The sinful nature, the old man, the old woman, the corpse is dead and you have been raised as a new creation in Christ. You're now made alive in Christ Jesus. So remember this. Believe this. Teach this to others. Sing this to others on a Sunday morning. Invite others to believe this for the first time or again when they fall back into acting like they're fully dead or like Jesus hasn't made them alive. Declare this over people when they need to hear it. I think Jesus here saying to other believers, unbind him, is just such a beautiful, powerful picture of the life of the church. Right? Of, of other Christians, other resurrected ones to each other regularly saying, don't forget that you're alive. You've been made alive with Christ. You're no longer dead. Consider yourself dead to sin. Remember what Jesus did. And as we do that, we are helping to unbind each other. We do that on Sunday mornings as as this has been keenly aware in, in my mind this morning, as we read scripture, as we take communion, as we uh, have fellowship with each other, as we sing, as we pray, we're doing this every single Sunday again and again and again, 
helping unbind each other of our former natures. And then as we scatter in our community groups and our friendships and families and dorm rooms and with our roommates and our workplaces and beyond, we help unbind each other. We help remind each other, you are no longer dead. Remember what Christ has done. Finally, thirdly, let's look at this passage just one more time with a third lens, a divine lens. We're going to see that in Lazarus' resurrection, there's actually a symbol, a picture, a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do, of Jesus' own resurrection. Let's look at that. Jesus, too, would truly die. Like Lazarus, he wouldn't just be sick, he wouldn't just be in a coma or paralyzed, but Jesus truly would die. And in fact, he was uh, executed by professional Roman executioners, people whose job it was to know how the body works and how to make it stop working. People who had crucified Jesus knowing that if they got it wrong, they would be thrown up there on the cross as well. So unlike people's uh, ideas, conspiracy theories about what really happened because people don't come back from the grave, Jesus didn't just kind of look dead and fool everyone. But rather, Jesus truly was dead. He wasn't just sleeping. He wasn't just paralyzed or in a coma. But he was uh, put in a tomb like Lazarus. His dead body was in a tomb wrapped up with, a, like Lazarus, another rock covering his entrance. In a lot of ways, that's where their stories cease to be one-to-one or similar. Unlike Lazarus, Jesus couldn't be held by death. And only was he, and not only was he stronger than death, Jesus, through his resurrection, would defeat death fully and once and for all. Second Timothy talks about this uh, in verse, or chapter 1, verse 10. The appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death. What a great word, abolished. Destroyed completely death. And through that, he brought life and immortality. Not just life now, yes. True and full and beautiful and powerful life right now, yes. But also immortality. And all this comes through the gospel. Now, I've used this word gospel a bunch this morning without defining it. Let me define what the gospel is here. Gospel means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus, too, would be taken by death, like Lazarus. His body also buried in a tomb. It would sit in that tomb four days, decaying, rotting, the smell of flesh being destroyed, filling that tomb Yet here's the good news. Jesus chose this because you and I deserved this. Because of our sin, you and I deserved to die. But Jesus chose to die in our place. He died so that what happened to Lazarus could also be the spiritual, eternal, and one day physical reality of anyone who believes in him. Jesus died for us so that Lazarus' reality times infinity could be your reality if you just trust in him. Jesus would rise. Jesus would rise, like Lazarus, but even greater. When John 
at the very end of the book of John, when he describes Jesus' resurrection, he intentionally uses the exact same language we see in this resurrection passage of Lazarus. Yes, Jesus would rise yet even greater. When Jesus would be resurrected, when he would be raised, he would not be bound by, by linen strips or a face cloth, a death cloth wrapped around his head. But rather, Jesus would rise victoriously. John's making it very clear that Jesus, he, he, he's not just a recipient of an unbelievable miracle by the one true God. While Lazarus is maybe the greatest miracle in human history, up to this point, something, someone, even greater is coming. Look at how John describes some of the details of Jesus' own resurrection. The disciples show up at the empty tomb, the rock rolled away, and they see the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. I think this is just a small detail, easy to miss, but just beautiful and powerful. Jesus' resurrection is infinitely better than Lazarus's. He doesn't need someone to come unbind him to finish the resurrection. And it's cool to see the, gla- the, the, the grave cloths are no longer wrapped around him, holding him down as if Jesus still had to work after his resurrection to, to, to live a fully holy and purified and victorious life. But he did it fully all by himself. We see the grave clothes here. They're, they're folded up. Never to be used again. Whereas Lazarus's, maybe they actually did. Maybe they washed him good and, and saved them up for in a few years or decades when Lazarus would die again. Jesus' grave clothes are folded up, never to be used again. His resurrection, his victory, fully complete. John actually wrote another book. John wrote many books. He wrote John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then he wrote another one that he didn't call 4th John. He called it Revelation, or we call it that. But the very end of the Bible, we have another book written by the same guy, John, the same disciple. He has a vision, this forward-looking, ultimate picture of what uh, the end of time is going to look like. And this John, he gets, he gets a picture of the risen Jesus in his full glory. And this is how it's described. This is John speaking. When I saw Jesus, when I saw the King of Kings, I fell at his feet as though dead. I was scared to death. I fell over when I saw Jesus in all of his glory. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Look at that name that Jesus gives himself. He says, I am the living one. That is who I am. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys of the prison that holds every single human. The keys of Hades, the place of death that we're all going towards, that no one has ever escaped. Billions of people walk this earth. No one has ever fully escaped death. Jesus says, I have the keys to the place of death, the holding place where everyone 
has to go. And he also says, I have the, I have the keys of death. I can unlock that, and it is through me, being the living one, through you, putting your trust in me that you too can walk in newness of life and fullness of life. You too can be spiritually resurrected, eternally resurrected, and one day physically resurrected when Christ returns. That is Jesus' message to you today. Whether you've never heard this before, maybe you've heard it many times before, you've never received it before because you just couldn't believe it or because you knew your past and you were just too ashamed to think that this could also be for you. Whatever it is, or maybe you have believed this many times, he says it to you again this morning, believe this, receive this. King Jesus has resurrected you through faith. You are made alive. Jesus says this is true of you today. And then out of that, let us help each other, unbind each other from the effects of our old nature, the effects of being spiritually dead, the sin that entangles us and pulls us back, our old nature. Let's pray. Jesus, what, what a powerful story, a true story, a real story of your love, not just for one single human, Brother, your love for, for all of humanity, that you saved Lazarus, not just because you loved him, but because you knew that through that, God would be glorified. People would believe that you are God and came from God the Father and that they would believe. We pray today in this room right now that people, because of this miracle, would believe, would believe again, would continue to believe, would believe for the first time. And help us to live out of that, to believe that we really are made alive in Christ, that we no longer have to sin anymore. We're no longer imprisoned by death. We're no longer enslaved to being self-focused and selfish and prideful and, and worshiping ourselves above others. That no longer has to be our reality because you have made us new. You have made us alive through faith in Christ. Thank you for that good news. Help us to live out of it. We pray by your spirit we would, uh, in, in many and various ways, help unbind each other from the effects of our former nature, that you would bring sanctification and healing and spiritual growth, and that we would look more and more uh, like you. We'd be conformed more into the image of Christ in whom we have been raised. Thank you, Lord, for this good news that we sing about, and uh, we pray this in your powerful and resur resurrecting name, Jesus. Amen.